Thank you for taking time to listen to this Redemption Church sermon. Redemption Church exists to make authentic disciples who live for the glory of God and the good of our world. We want to help everyday people wake up to a deep, meaningful life in Christ. We pray this sermon will help. For more information about Redemption Church and for additional resources, please visit redemptionokc.com. It's fun to get into the Christmas season. Some of you have been playing Christmas carols for two months and you got issues, but the rest of us are happy to join you now. So that's a good place to be. Um, let, me, uh, let me start off. I want to tell you about an article I was reading called Death by Information Overload. This was a Harvard Business Review article and just had some interesting stats and I was looking some stuff up and thinking about this this week. But current research, it says, suggests that the surging volume of available information, maybe you feel like you have a lot of inputs in your life, a lot of data points that are flowing in constantly in your life can adversely affect not only personal well-being, yeah, you don't say, right? Uh, but also decision-making, innovation, productivity. That's one thing said that uh, IQs go down for every device you add, your IQ goes down like 10, per, 10 points. Um, like where are we headed collectively as a society when that's where we are? But one of the things it said, just some data, it said knowledge workers uh, on average spend 20 hours a week managing email. 60% of computer users check email in the bathroom. I get a show of hands. No, I'm just kidding. I don't, really don't want to know. But I mean, I can look around the room and I, like, I've got a pretty good idea what 60% looks like. So a bunch of you are guilty. Um, and, and if it isn't bad enough that you're checking your email in the bathroom, it says 15% of people have checked their email during church. During church. Some of y'all are checking email while I'm preaching. And while Chris is leading and we're singing up here. Um, the, there's just facts, right? And some of you are doing it. Some of you may be doing it right now. You're just like, oh yeah, I want to know about that one thing. He's reminded me of that. Uh, typical knowledge worker says checks emails 50 to 100 times a day. 85% of work emails are opened within two minutes of their arrival if you're in an office setting. Uh, this one's kind of crazy. It says, it, on average, the studies are projecting it takes 24 minutes to get back on task after being distracted by an email. So if we're checking emails that often and not getting back on task for about 24 minutes, that's why they estimate that information overload's costing the U.S. economy $90 billion a year. Think this is a problem? Yeah, it seems to be, right? Another study talked about our screen habits, and this was horrifying. I'm just going to read this quote from an article. It said, the numbers are going up. The average amount of time spent on media in the United States has increased by 60 minutes per day since 2011. In 2019, the average daily time spent was 12 and a half hours per day, over half of every 24-hour period. While those numbers had been projected to remain consistent through 2020, the world events happening in 2020 and beyond have actually now suggesting, they're actually now suggesting that we will average 13 hours and 35 minutes per day on some kind of a device. It's, it is crazy talk, right? Like that's it's absolute insanity. And so um, now here's the other side. Um, any of you football fans? Like, I, I, 
don't check your device right now, but I hear that there's a coach being announced for OU, and that's good news for the state of Oklahoma because half of the state of Oklahoma productivity got decreased by about half last week as everyone was hitting refresh on Twitter, like, do they have a coach? Do they have a coach? Do they have a coach? You know, it's going to be here Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday, and I hear that there'll be an announcement later today, so don't look now. Um, three of you are going to do it, though. I know you are because you just want to know. Um, but this becomes a problem for us. But information overload is a real deal. It's a real deal for our personal well-being. It's a real deal for our economy. But I think there's a bigger concern for us and as a society is that information overload just begins to flatten all information and all inputs that we begin to have into a single bucket to where we can't value the importance over junk that we read on the internet and the truth of God's word because there's so many things that are just coming at us that we just absorb it all and put it all in the same bucket and just try to get through the day. And so we lose our ability to sift and sort that which is merely junk from that which is ultimate truth. And we stop believe, believing the word which is trustworthy and true from beginning to end. So friends, if you wanna find a meaningful life and place of strength and rest this Christmas, I want to point you to a single word. The word made flesh. The word of Christ who came to be with us. One, the one word that can stop you in your tracks. The one word that captures your full attention and reorients all your days. So let's look at John 1. If you've got your Bibles, look with me to John chapter 1. It's in the New Testament. There's four, what we call Gospels, the first four books of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And we're going to start at the first chapter of the book, John, in the New Testament. And we're beginning a new series called Grace Moves In. We're going to go through the book, this chapter of John, for John 1, through the rest of the month of December. And it will be really worth your time, honestly, to read and reflect on it throughout the month. I'd encourage you just to go back and read John 1 when you've got some time Instead of running to something else, just go to John 1 and just meditate on it, reflect on it, think on it, let it just kind of absorb it. Um, and what we're going to see in this text is really the implications for how you think and believe personally, but also going to see implications for how we're to live in the mission of our church and our city. And so as we unpack this over the next few weeks, I think it's going to be really encouraging for us. So John 1, verse 1, says, In the beginning was the Word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. So John starts off, and this is honestly in the most amazing book in human history. This is one of the most amazing chapters, and it's so rich and so well scripted that I, you know, it always blows me away when I come back to it. But you notice that he begins and he says, you know, in the beginning was, the, was what? The word. What does he mean by the word? And, and this, this term logos in Greek has a really big, broad context. You need to understand uh, the meaning of this term in, in a bigger, broader context. And one, it's a philosophically loaded word. And so Greek philosophy often referred back to the, the logos or the word as the, the in, impersonation of reason or wisdom. It was the thing that governed all of life. And so as you understood this uh, kind of reference to reason, it was this bigger than life sort of force of nature that determined the way all things worked in, in, in a philosophical system. Then beyond that, if you go to the Old Testament, kind of for ethnic Jews that, that grew up in a, in a 
Judaistic culture, there was this kind of secondary context that had a more religious connotation and connected it to Jewish tradition. And what John is saying when he says, in the beginning was the word, he actually is going to go back and say, there's, there's a word that's bigger than all philosophy. There's a word that's bigger than all religious tradition. There's a word that's larger than any other human, uh, human reason or human wisdom that we, can, that we could pour our lives into. And so John is gonna go on and quote Jesus later in the book. And you can see the importance of this just in these two verses. Uh, John 5, 24 says, and this is Jesus talking, says, truly, truly, and you only say truly, truly if you really want someone to listen right? And that's like mama pulling out your middle name. And you know, it's like, oh, I'm supposed to listen up. That's what Jesus is doing. He's using your middle name right here. He's saying, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. Everything hinged on the word. John 15, three says, I'm the true vine, I'm the vine dresser. Every branch that in me does not bear fruit, he takes away, he goes on and then he says, already you are clean because of the word I've spoken to you. That's what cleans you and cleanses you. Abide in me and I in you as the branch cannot bear much fruit, bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I'm the vine and you are the branches and so he comes back to this idea of the word. And what Jesus says is the word is what makes you clean. The word is what brings you life. And as you abide in me and abide in my word, that's the only way that, that through me, you, become, you begin to bear fruit and have a fruitful life that flourishes and thrives as God intended you to have. And it's through the word that those things happen. And so when you think about this term, you might think of the word as kind of divine self-expression. This is God's revelation of himself, his revealing, the creator's revealing himself to his creatures in terms and in a, in a, in a language they can understand. Uh, you ever go to a foreign country and you try to communicate with someone who doesn't speak the language and in our foolishness, what do we tend to do? Well, I'll just talk slower and louder and maybe they'll understand, but they can't understand it. And what God said was, you need me to come communicate to you in a language that you can understand. And so the word is going to come to you. We're gonna see more about that a little later, but what is, it, what is so important about this word? Well, first you notice he says that, uh, it says that in the beginning was the word. It's a very simple statement. It's just that he was. It doesn't tell you anything about him. It just says the word was there in the beginning. What beginning is he talking about? Well, he's talking about before there was any creation, before there's anything else, the word existed. And so he's talking about something that's eternal or someone that's eternal. He just was. It's similar to the Old Testament statements when God revealed himself and Moses said, who should I say came, sent me? And Moses said, what? Well, just tell them that the I am sent you, that I am whoever I am. I'm, I can't be defined by you. I can't be confined by your brain. I can't be kind of put in a little box that you can wrap your finite mind around. I'm infinite. I will be whoever I will be. And so it starts off John 1, the very first sentence. He says, in the beginning, the word just was. And he existed. So he's eternal. Second, it says, in the word was what? With God. So somehow there, the word is there with God and it's referring to God the Father. So somehow the word, and we're going to see later, that's referring to Jesus. So God the Son is there with God the Father in the beginning before anything in the world had been created. And so he wants you to understand that Jesus was there at the very beginning before the Father created the world. 
In fact, he was going, we'll see, he was a part of the creation. The third thing it says that the word was God. So in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. It's amazing how much truth is packed into that one sentence, isn't it? I mean, there's so much of, uh, of what we understand from this whole Bible that John has condensed down and said, here's what you need to know. Jesus has, is eternal. He existed before anything else existed. In fact, he was there with God at the very beginning. In fact, he was God in the very beginning. And so you begin to understand something about this. And so uh, the question there is, well, how was Jesus with, how was the word with God and the word was God? Does that, I mean, does that throw anyone off a little bit? Uh, this is the mystery of the Trinity. It's the thing that, that we believe as Christians that there's a God who is three in one. He's God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Three persons in one Godhead. And there's a unique mystery to that. And the Bible insists that it's true. That they're all equally um, divine persons uh, united in one Godhead. And so far, we see here in John 1, the Father and the Son. But elsewhere in the New Testament, we see the Holy Spirit. Uh, if you're not sure about that, we just finished a seven-week sermon series on the Holy Spirit. So go back and listen to that. And you can fill in the blanks on some of that. Uh, but in verse 2, you notice what he says he goes back and sort of repeats it. He says, he was there in the beginning with God, meaning that Jesus was there at the very beginning. Verse three, all things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. Now, some of you are poets and you like that statement. The rest of you are going, wait, what? Like, I, that was really confusing. I'm not sure exactly what he's trying to say. What he's saying is nothing was created apart from Jesus. That the, no, the God created everything through the agency of the Son, and he was present very much at creation, and so he was integral to the whole process. And so it's not just without him, but it's apart from him nothing was created, meaning he was personal, active, invested in the creation of the world, which is pretty remarkable because this one who is a creator is going to enter the creation as a human being, as a baby, as one who's dependent upon other of the creatures, as we will see in verse 14, it says, and the word became flesh. So this word who was and who was with God and was God and was there in the beginning when things were created somehow became flesh. He became human. He became one of us. Before we get to that, we need to understand that the creation itself is an act of revelation. So how do we know God? When we talk about revelation, revelation just means the revealing of one thing to another. And so, uh, you know, if you wanted to go out on a date with someone, in my day, you had to actually walk up to someone and talk to them. And so you might actually have to introduce yourself and have a conversation and said, hi, my name is Jeff. And what is your name? And, you know, tell me more about you. And you begin a dialogue. And your day, you may just swipe something and go, I now know who you are and have all the facts. Now, you don't really get to know them because you still have to introduce yourself, but you can choose then to reveal more of yourself or to go, peace out, don't want it, right? And so that's the way dating works is you can reveal a little bit of yourself and then maybe you get to reveal some more if they're interested and maybe they go, I know enough about you. I'm going to move on. And those, those days kind of hurt sometimes, right? But that's what revealing revelation really is. It's kind of unveiling who you are and letting people see who you are. What, what we're talking about here is God saying, I want to reveal who I am to you so you can get to know me. And he does that in multiple ways. One is through his creation. 
In fact, Romans says, for what can be known about God is plain. God has shown it to us in the, their invisible, his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so that they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him or give thanks to him, it became futile in their thinking. There's this revelation of God that we can choose to pursue or not. And so when you look out and you see a sunset and you go, surely someone had to have painted that. That ought to be breadcrumbs leading you down a path to pursue God, to seek him, to get to know him more. Uh, when, when you look out and you see the changing of the seasons and you see uh, the leaves falling off and falling into your pool or, or falling into your yard and then you got to go clean them up and you're grumbling about all that stuff and there's a death. But then in spring, what happens? New leaves pop up and there's new life and you go, oh, there's something there about resurrection that ought to remind me. And there's something there about God that I ought to pursue. And that ought to be like breadcrumbs leading me down a path to pursue God. God, would you reveal more of yourself to me? Because that can only take us so far. It doesn't take us far enough. But we're meant to see that kind of a connection here. So John, go back to verse one. What's he, what are the first words in verse one? In the beginning. Anyone, does that ring a bell for anyone? Do you, can you think of any other place in the Bible where those words show up? The first three words of the Bible in Genesis. In the beginning. It's the same exact phrase. And so in John one, you get in the beginning. In, Je, in John, uh, Genesis one, you get in the beginning. Um, let me just tell you how th this works for, for people in that culture when they read John's gospel when they heard someone read it and they said in the beginning and there were light bulbs going off for them they were like oh this is, this is about Genesis this is talking about the beginning of the world this is referring me back to all that and we do the kind of same kind of thing all the time look at uh, this slide behind me and tell me if you know where this came from now, if you're a child of the 80s or maybe someone who at least has watched, you know, good movies, the movies that you should be watching in life, uh, you know this and you see this and instantly you can hear the music in your head, can't you? Like you know it and you're waiting for like the, the title of the new episode to burst on the screen and for then the words to like start retreating back into the, into the night sky as they kind of, you know, tell you the, the, the setup for the story and you know exactly what it is anytime you see a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. That's what it was like for them, for, for the people in that culture when they heard in the beginning. They're like, oh, this is about that other thing. This is about Genesis. This is about the creation of the world. So Genesis 1, let me just read to you Genesis 1. We'll go back there. It says, in the beginning, there's those words, right? God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good and God separated the light from the darkness. So you get this theme in Genesis 1 and John 1 that are really repeating a lot of the same things, except John 1's actually gonna blow up and expand what happened in Genesis 1. So Genesis 1, you get the creation of the, the natural realm, right? John 1, you get this cosmic recreation of an eternal realm that, that is birthing forth in the person of Jesus and his arrival in the world. So Genesis 1, you get in the beginning, talking about the creation of the world. John 1, he says in the beginning, it's actually before the creation of the world. So he's actually going back before Genesis 1 and saying, you know what, Jesus was around even before we got to Genesis 1. So he's even bigger than what you guys realized. Genesis, uh, Genesis talks about God. John talks about God with us. God made flesh, the word made flesh. Genesis 1, uh, Genesis 1, you talk about natural life of creation. 
John 1, you get new life, eternal life in Christ. John 1, you get the light of creation. So he's talking about the sun and the moon and the stars. When you get to John 1, you get the light of Christ and the revelation of God making himself known and enlightening us, enlightening our minds so that we could see God for who he is. Genesis 1, you get darkness, the darkness of creation before the lights had been placed into the sky in order to light the world. Instead, he separated the light from the darkness. In John 1, you get darkness, but it's darkness caused by sin and fall of man and the futility of our minds and human reason that's unable to find its way out of the darkness without God breaking in and bringing light into the darkness. So do you see what, what John's trying to do here? You're starting to see how he's trying to unpack and make this connection back to Genesis 1. You get to verses 4 and 5. He continues to build his argument. He says, in him, so this word is personal, right? In, in him, in this person, in this one who's come was life. Or, or this one who existed forever, and we'll see a little bit later it will come. It says, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. So he connects these ideas of light and life. And so that creation of the world in Genesis 1, where God breathed and spoke and created a world, a natural world, where there was life and there were living beings. John 1 says Jesus is coming and he's the light and in him is the life that will actually be, bring light, new life to us. And so Jesus is one who held the power. He created everything and he breathed into creation, life in the very beginning. But light and life also have to do not just with the original creation, but with the recreation of new life and eternal life and forever life that we'll have. And so if you, spend, if you, if you read the, the rest of the book of John, you'll see these themes of light and life work their way through the entire book. And so John's going to continue to unpack that all the way through. And this difference between the life of creation and natural life and then the life of Christ and eternal life. In verse 5, you get kind of another layer to this and it says um, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. Darkness here probably refers to the fall of man. That God created us to walk in this glorious creation and when we chose sin, when we chose to fall, when we chose to, to, to run after stuff um, that was really built out of self and no longer trusting God, that we became sort of cloaked in darkness and we no longer could see things as they truly were. And so we, we, became, uh, we became bound in what, what the scriptures or what, what theologians call the fall of man. And though, though man sinned and death came into the world, what's encouraging here is that darkness did not overcome it. That in the end, darkness doesn't win. In the end, sin does not have the last word. In the end, death is overcome by victory. Uh, and so there's good news that's there. And that's what John wants us to see is that even though there's darkness in the world, even though there's difficulty that, people's, that people go through that ultimately they will not overcome. You go back to Genesis 3, there's, uh, Genesis 3.15 refers to uh, this seed of a woman who will come and it says, we'll snuff out the serpent. We'll stomp on his head. And it says the serpent will bite his heel, but the, the, the seed of the woman will stomp on that serpent's head and crush it. And that's what we call the first gospel. It's the first, the first hint that there's going to be a man who will come who will deal with this problem of evil that's in the world. 
And so that's all the way back to Genesis 3.15 and you see that begin to unpack and you see in Revelation that Jesus comes and he's victorious over, over evil. And so you begin to see this grand narrative unfold and John is wanting his readers to understand that the word Jesus was there in the beginning at the creation of the world but he's also there in the, the, the light of redemption that brings the, that brings the word to, uh, to us that gives us new life and forever life. He brings us the gospel and he's the gospel incarnate. So friends, you see this kind of dark clue. We're gonna get more into some of what that is later, but what we see in this, uh, this kind of contrast of light and darkness is that um, as we get through the next couple of weeks, we're gonna see that there's some who don't heed the light, but some who actually choose to walk in deeds of darkness. Some who put on blinders so that they do not see the light. And then there's others, it says, who believe the word and they receive him and they become children of God. And so you're gonna see this kind of two groups of people that begin to emerge out of the response to the word who is made flesh. So as you think about these symbols, I want us to, to jump down one more verse. Jump down to verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So remember the word, who's the word? Jesus. And it says here that the word became what? Flesh. That means that Jesus, who is divine, stepped into the creation and took on human flesh. He didn't set aside his divinity, remained divine. He was still 100% God. But he wed that to his humanity. And I don't know if you realize this, but Jesus will be forever human. He, he didn't just put it on like a cloak. He didn't just dress himself up in kind of the appearance of being a man for 33 years. He became one of us. He entered into creation. He came down on our turf and he cried like a baby and wiggled like a baby, just like Charlie Ann did a little bit ago when we did the dedication. And so he was in, it just, just as, as, as each of you as an infant cried and experienced emotion and had ups and downs, Jesus entered into creation and did the same. Is that not remarkable? The one who was not just there that the creation began through, but the one who was there before the creation, the, the one through whom everything was created actually entered into his creation. Why? Because he wanted you to know him. He wanted to reveal himself. He was willing to risk his vulnerability and step into that space so that you would get to know who he is. And that was his divine and sovereign plan. And so when you see this idea, of, uh, it's important to remember that Christ uh, came and dwelt among us, that he was God who eternally existed, but then he stepped in in a moment in time into our world and became one of us. Dwelt among us, uh, one guy translated and said, Jesus was God moving in down the street from us. Yeah. And isn't that good? When you think about your neighbors and think one day that the, the God of the universe, the God who spoke and said, let the sun rise, stepped into one of the houses down the street from you and said, I'm gonna live here. I wanna be your neighbor because I want you to get to know me. That's what we're meant to understand by the incarnation, by Christ coming and becoming one of us. Dwelt among us could also be translated tabernacled among us, which refers back to the Old Testament. So 
pointing back again to Genesis and to the Old Testament and then walking through the Exodus. Uh, it really goes back to another reference to when God dwelt in the tabernacle in the midst of his people. In the Old Testament, they spoke of the glory of God descending. And in fact, they, in, in the Exodus, it said that in the wilderness that God would shine during the night so they could see him. And he would appear as a cloud during day so that they could see him. And those were the visible reminders of God's presence with his people. And he says, you're my chosen people. I want you to know me. I want you to, to see my presence among you. And when they created the tabernacle, it said that he came down and he filled it. When Moses went up on the mountaintop to receive the law from him, Moses came down and he was glowing. And it was like the glory of God that shined like a light had dripped all over Moses. And for a time, people were freaked out and scared. So Moses like had to wear a veil. They're like, dude, I don't know what's happening. I don't know if, you know, you got a little radiation on you or what's happening right now, but you're kind of scaring me because you're shining in a really weird way. And it's because he'd been in the presence of God. And so in the Old Testament, that presence of God radiated as a light. And so when you think of glory, there's this idea of, of it shining before us. And that's what we're meant to see here. But in those instances, it was always isolated. It was always temporary. It was always veiled. But Jesus' arrival in the flesh was different. It was forever. It was personal. And it was full in a way that people had never seen God with that kind of clarity before. And so we're meant to focus and fixate on the person of Jesus. Have you ever tried to explain some, a, a difficult concept to a child? Have you ever wrestled with that? Where they come and kids ask the best questions. And sometimes they come and they ask you something and you think, I know I'm supposed to be the adult here and I'm supposed to answer this, but I don't really know the answer, so I'm going to make something up. And then you try to do the best you can and like, okay, I'm going to give you, all, I'm going to give you my best shot at this, right? And usually when you do that, what, what, is it, what is it your first thing that you're inclined to do? You usually get down on their level. You usually get down where you can see them eye to eye and you sit down next to them at a table and pull them up close and say, okay, let me try to explain this as best I can in, in words that you'll understand. And you make this kind of feeble effort to try to communicate really complex ideas to a child who maybe can't quite get it yet. What we're meant to see in, in John 1 is that God looks at us and just like you don't look at your kid and go, well, dummy, you don't, why don't you understand that? Which look at your kid and go, well, let me try to help you understand as best I can. John 1 is about God looking at you and saying, let me help you understand as best I can. And you know the best way I can explain it to you? Let me get down on your level. Let me actually put on flesh. Let me become one of you. Let me walk around with you and show you what it looks like. Let me, let me teach you. Let me walk with you. Let me unveil my life before you and just slowly unpack who I am so that you get to see it. And then let me finally lay down my life so you see the ultimate love and the ultimate sacrifice of me being willing to give my own life for you so that you can live forever with me. See, the reason Jesus took on flesh and became one of us was so that we could become like him and we could live forever with him. And so he didn't abandon us to ourselves, but though we created a dark world, he stepped in among us and here's what's amazing as we step back and kind of think about all this, because I know that's a lot of truth. There's a lot of stuff to unpack there. What, how does that relate to us here today in Edmond, Oklahoma in this time? Well, in that day, no one had ever conceived of the world dwelling among us as one of us before. 
So they had talked about the logos. They had talked about the word. They had talked about reason. They had talked about wisdom. They had talked about this rule for life, that, uh, this kind of divine idea deal that was out there somewhere that we were supposed to pursue this ideal of reason. Um, but, but Plato and the Greek philosophers had talked about this in, invisible, eternal mystery that we're to seek and unravel to try to understand the way in which we could flourish on earth. And so they, they, they wrote and they talked and they taught about all these things, but they'd never conceived of reason becoming one of us, of the word being made flesh. And so when John's writing this, he's going, let me tell you of, of a, a wisdom that's greater than anything you could ever imagine. That, that's not invisible, that's not impersonal, but let me tell you about a word made flesh that's radically more personal and more clear than any, any philosophical ideal. And so he's intending for us to see that. Now, Jesus, therefore, in that way, went beyond the imaginations of the philosophers of that day. Jesus also went beyond all the religious ideas of that day. And so he, John is kind of blowing that up and saying, look, everything that, that the world has been able to discern as true, Jesus is greater and he's also closer to us than any of those ideas. Friends, I think in our day, we need the same help that they needed in Jesus' time. I think we need to understand that there is a word that is greater than all the philosophies of our day and greater than all the religious ideas and religious idiots in our day. There, there are things that we need to understand just as they needed to understand and we're just as needy as they are to, to know that there is a word that goes beyond all the words of humanity day after day. And as we walk in this world that just inundates us with one idea and one thought and one word after another, and they keep coming and they keep scrolling and they keep popping in our inboxes and they keep coming to us and you can access more books. I know, I think up till about the printing press, you could literally have read everything that had ever been written in a book up to that time. Now there's more printed every single day than what existed at that time. We are inundated with ideas all over the place but Jesus is the one word that we need. And friends, we need to understand that Jesus goes beyond all the philosophical thinkers of our day. So all the postmodern thinking, all the self-expression, all the social constructs that we talk about will never go, be able to go beyond the word of God made flesh to dwell among us. And all the religious ideas and posturing and political maneuvering and personal positioning cannot hold a candle to the word of God made flesh. And, and all the things that ripple throughout our day. I mean, we need to understand this is what Christmas is about. It's about a word that was spoken that's meant to trump every other word that there is. And just as people in Jesus' time were not to be controlled by the philosophies and religious idea, ideas of their age, um, we, need to, we need to never surrender ourselves to the philosophies and religious ideas of our day apart from the word of God in the word made flesh. That those are the things that ultimately speak truth to us. And so ultimately, we don't need to fear them. We don't need to hide from them because why? I mean, what does Jesus say? It says that the light has shined in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. So we don't need to fear interacting with these things. We don't need to fear dialogue. We don't need to fear conversation. We don't need to fear friendship with people that don't see these things. But we need to know that there's a word that's greater. There's a word that's truer. There's a word that's trustworthy and that's eternal and that's forever. 
and, and it's that word that ultimately ought to form us in, and be the final word in all matters of life and faith and morality and justice and goodness and beauty and purpose. It's the word that informs us in all those things. Now, some of you may be thinking, well, you know, that's great, but you don't really know all my struggles and doubts, right? You don't know the, my questions about morality and sexuality and um, justice and goodness and worth and power and beauty. And you don't know all the questions that I've got. And you're right, I don't. I probably have a pretty good idea because I probably have some of them too. I don't have all, all the answers, but what I want to say to you from John 1 is that's kind of the point. That there's a word that's beyond human reason. There's a word that goes beyond our finite minds and our ability to reason. And if we grope about in the darkness without the light that comes down from above, we're never gonna find our way to a better place. That ultimately what John is saying is that Jesus is the word that goes beyond reason and receiving him and believing him is what leads us ultimately to light, the light of understanding of what, how we are to live in this world. And so we need to trust him. And friends, I get that this is not easy, especially for you younger folks. I mean, living in this world, I think, is harder than it was when I was a kid. And there's more ideas, there's more difficulties, there's more uh, opinion on, every, uh, on every, every kind of topic. Everyone's an expert. Um, everyone has, a, has an, opinity, uh, an opinion about everything. And every person supposedly gets to create his or her own reality. So, like, how do you argue with that? There's no way to dialogue with a world system that says everyone gets to decide what they think is true. But I, you need to know from John 1 that there is a word that is true. There's a word that is firm. There's a word that is objectively real and he came, became one of us as a person. And, and you can't dismiss a person who came in the flesh, their virgin birth and walked on the earth and taught and has followers and died upon a cross and left an empty tomb. You can't dismiss that as, this, as a mere construct. I was watching a show recently, Ted Lasso, and sometimes it's helpful to mention these things, sometimes it's not. Um, but as I was watching this show, um, there's a scene where three coaches are standing on, a, on the sidelines of a soccer match, and as they're dialoguing there, it's a really tense scene, and uh, there's you know a couple American coaches, and one coach is, that's a Brit, I believe he's of Indian descent, but they're there, and one of them just says, uh, I'm sorry, but do you mind if I pray? And he goes, sure, but to which God and what language? And then they all look at each other and then they all begin just to pray. And so there's kind of this strange interaction in this moment of the game where they're kind of dealing with this, this new reality that we all live in where it appears you can be wise to admit that you can't know God or understand who he is. That wisdom somehow is acknowledging that uh, that, that we've all made this up and we're not really sure, but then we should go ahead and do it because, you know, maybe it'll work. And so that is, kind of becomes what wisdom is and it's sort of a, a funny scene. But here's the thing, I think maybe we call it, uh, maybe we even try to re, redefine that and say, well, uh, religion and, and God is just a social construct that we made to deal with the hardship of the world. And so we're kind of grasping at straws and holding on to something, but maybe that works for you and you should try it anyway is what our philosophy would say. John 1 says, no, there is a word that is true. And he's made himself known, he's revealed himself to us, and he's become one of us, he's put on flesh and become one of us. Maybe you're doubting and you say, well, Jeff, that's not really my, my deal. Maybe you're doubting because you look at Christians and you go, 
Man, I just, I read one story after another of all of them falling down and failing and failing and failing. And what am I going to do in the midst of all the, all the stories that fill my timeline of all the mistakes? And what I want to say to you is, that's sort of the point. That we, in our human ability, fail over and over and over. And we need a savior. We need someone from outside to break in to the darkness and give us life and light that we are not capable of generating on our own. Um, friends, I'm one of those people who will fail you. Um, look around the room. Everyone here will fail you. I, I'm pretty convinced that as I look throughout human history and I look at all the leaders in Christian movement, every one of them has some theological idea that's just crazy. And I'm pretty sure the reason why is because God wants you to look at them and go, wow, as much as they did right, they're not the word. They're not Jesus. As much as I look at them and I can admire things in their life, um, I, they, weren't God, they weren't the word made flesh and dwelt among us. And, and as much as they blew it, I can't dismiss everything they did. I can't just cancel them because of that because they're just like I am. And we're all in the same boat. We're all in need of a word that comes to us. So friends, here's what I want to do. I want to give you this simple reminder. Christmas is our annual reminder that the word has been spoken greater than all, that a word has been spoken greater than all human reason. Um, Christmas is a reminder that there's a light brighter than all others that has come to shine in the darkness. Christmas tells us that God is with us in a way that he can truly be comprehended. Christmas is, uh, proclaims the divine word broke into our world to make God known to us. Christmas says God so loved the world that he sent his only son to become one of us. And Christmas tells us that God wanted us to know him so deeply that he communed him himself in the clearest, most personal expression possible. He became one of us. So friends, this, this season, let's look to him. This has all kinds of implications for life. We'll have to unpack those another day. But what I do know is if we don't get this right, none of the rest of it matters. We have to trust Christ. Let me pray for us. Father, I thank you that you loved us enough to send your only begotten son, to rescue us. That though we were in darkness, you broke in and you revealed yourself to us through the person of Jesus and the way in which he lived, the perfect life um, which he modeled for us and the death which he sacrificed for us and the resurrection which he claimed victory, in which he claimed victory for us. Father, we put all of our hope upon him. The word may flesh. That's, where we, that's, that's what we trust. Help us to receive him, to believe him, to walk as your children. Amen.